listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today we're going to look at the Gospel according to St. Luke. We've been following Luke all along. This is a particularly long gospel, chapter 15, verses 1 through 32. It contains three different parables, all of them with a similar message. And Jesus, in these parables, discusses the, uh, the relationship between justice, righteousness, and sinfulness, and the perceptions of those in the eyes of a variety of different kinds of people. It begins with the tax collectors and the sinners were all seeking the company of Jesus to hear that what he had to say. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained. This man, they said, welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them. So what's happening now is that Jesus is associating kind of with, not with the, your better people within the society. Um, whatever, whatever their sinfulness might be or whatever their um, social status might be, they don't meet really the, uh, the standards of the scribes and the Pharisees for being upright and righteous members of, of Jewish society. And so they, they, they criticize the Lord for this. And you know, this in a way kind of is for, for whom did the Lord come? And what is the role of the healing presence of Jesus, the healing presence of the church in the midst of the world? Is it simply to save the saved? Is it simply to minister to the needs of those people who believe and who tend to live their lives as closely with that faith as possible? Or is it maybe to gather the extremes? Um, Pope Francis always talks about the people on the periphery. Um, but it, it doesn't mean, of course, that you unquestionably um, accept their lifestyle and so forth. That's, that's not what this is talking about. You can't, you can't say you bring in, you know, um, prostitutes and abortionists and all of this kind of thing and, and say, um, yeah, but, but, you know, they're good people after all and it doesn't matter what they do. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel says, yes, you should associate with them. And yes, you should in some way, shape, or form reach out to them. And yes, you should be open to them, you know, seeking the Lord and be vehicles and channels for them to entering the church. But um, just simply having a, a social relationship with them is, uh, is not necessarily what the gospel is talking about. Jesus makes a difference in his association with, with, with publicans and sinners. Um, he doesn't just say, oh, well, you know, you go about your business, everything is okay, you know, let's be friends. That's not, that's not what he talks about. And so he goes, the first parable that he tells them in relationship to this, he's trying to say, he's trying to say to the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, the, the, the righteousness that you live and the righteousness, and, and we've seen before, that uh, St. Paul attacks this, really, and, and because their sense of righteousness, as long as you observe the letter of the law, um, of, of the rabbinical law, you're, you're, you're all right in their eyes. It doesn't matter what's in your heart, and it doesn't matter, you know, and as long as you don't violate the law. We saw that, for instance, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, one of the, one of the other very famous parables of the Gospel. We saw in that, 
<clears throat> that uh, the priests and the, the Levites were not obligated to, to assist the man who had been beaten and lay side the road, and so they did nothing morally wrong by ignoring him. It was, the, uh, it was the Samaritan who was free of the law, who wasn't bound by the law, that was able, therefore, to show human compassion. And, and I think that, you know, that maybe that's where we ought to focus in, in, in these gospel stories, is the idea not of the strict observers of the law, not of those people who, um, who do everything right and stand, therefore, in righteous judgment on others, but what is it in Christianity that frees us to live good lives and yet at the same time have compassion on those who suffer from the heavy burdens of sin? And I think that that's something that we, we too often um, don't really reflect upon either. And that's going to be thematic in, in, these, in these three parables, the, three, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son. All of them have something in common. And that something in common is somehow coming out of the darkness and into the light, not affirming people in the dark places of their lives. That's not what we're supposed to do. That's not, that's not good to them. And what we don't really comprehend is that sin ultimately is a prison. Ultimately, it's darkness. Um, we can say, gee, you know, look at all these people there, and, and the Psalms talk about us, you know, why do the ways of the wicked prosper? Um, we can see all these people, you know, living a fabulous lifestyle. We can see politicians and entertainers and all of those kinds of people um, have being fabulously wealthy, doing jet-setting all over the world, creating huge carbon footprints while they scold others for doing so. Um, who, um, who, who somehow or other seem to have everything. We, d we don't really realize the darkness that lies inside of a lot of that and the suffering that they do because of that. Not that they recognize the suffering. Because people, people who, who have everything and are unhappy have a great tendency not to blame themselves but to blame others or to, to blame God, if they believe in a God, for causing their misery for them. They don't realize that it is sin that causes their misery. And so while here in the story of the lost sheep, and just, we, we know this, but um, um, what man among you with, with a hundred sheep losing one would not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the missing one till he found it? And when he had found it, he would not joyfully take it on his shoulders. And then when he got home, called together his friends and they rejoiced with me, he would say, I have found my sheep that was lost. In the same way, I tell you, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one repentant sinner than over 99 virtuous men who have no need of repentance. Who was in the least danger? The flock, the 99 that he left. Who was in the most danger? The one that was out on their own. And within relationship, therefore, to, to society, we can say, that um, no matter how many of us are faithful and how many of us live the life, it creates for us some kind of meaning and purpose at the depth of our lives. It creates for us some kind of freedom of mind and of heart. It, it, it's all positive. 
it might cost us something. We might have to do penance. We might, of course, live with deprivation or even with tragedy. But even in those cases, we still have something left within ourselves to look forward to, something left within ourselves for life. And many times, those who have chosen to go astray, while they have every earthly consolation, they have no consolation in their hearts, in their minds, in their souls. And they are essentially unhappy people. Look at the serial marriages of the Hollywood stars, for instance. Um, nothing is ever good enough for them. No one is ever compatible with them. They never can find that kind of happiness and peace that they're looking for. Um, and so they move on to the next person and experience the same thing all over again. And then you find them, you know, testifying, well, gee, I never really loved anybody. Nobody ever really loved me. It's really a tragic story. And, uh, and we, we fail sometimes to realize that while sin seems to pay off in this world, it does not create inside of itself that which people who believe have inside of themselves, a certain sense of peace and a certain sense of comfort. And so if at the last minute these sinful people come into the church or come in and reconciled, are reconciled with God, um, we've had a much better life than they have, and we should not in any way, shape, or form resent their conversion because we certainly have had that kind of gift of some kind of peace and some kind of understanding within our lives all the way along. How many times, for instance, at a, at a, at a wake service do you hear someone say, I don't know what I'd do if I didn't believe, if I didn't have faith. Um, for those who do not have faith, it's simply pure loss. There is nothing else. There is no hope. There is no continuing relationship between the living and the dead in which we firmly believe. And so when you lose someone, they are lost forever. When you lose someone, there's nothing but darkness and emptiness where they used to be. And, and that's the same way in, in human relationships. We can suffer from, from broken human relationships, and certainly the believing community does. And they experience great loss in everything. But underneath it all, there is kind of, a, we might even call it a protective platform of hope or one of trust or one of saying, this hurts worse than anything that's ever happened to me. But, you know, tomorrow is another day. Tomorrow, you know, there's great possibilities. It's, it's not the end of everything. Um, even though I feel that way today, I won't maybe feel that way tomorrow. Because the idea that being in tune with the divine means very honestly being in tune with ourselves. For we are made in the image and the likeness of God. And we are reminded, even by the great Rhineland mystics, especially Jan von Ruysbroek, um, we, are, we are reminded that, uh, that God dwells within us, that no matter how difficult or hard our life might be, that somehow or other there is a divine presence in it which will draw us up into fulfillment, into completion, into happiness, joyfulness, holiness, and so forth. So it's that underlying trust and confidence, even in the midst of tragedy, that the believer has the great advantage over the one who does not believe, even in this world, no matter what the externals might look at like, and no matter what the differential might be in fame and power and wealth or any of those other things. For, for without, without the sense of being somehow grounded 
in something greater than myself, without that sense, then every suffering is much more intense and much more difficult than, than anything that we ourselves go through. For as the Lord has showed us in his crucifixion, or St. Vincent in the early martyr of Rome, or any of the others, the, the North American martyrs and so forth, what they suffered, they suffered out of love. And in doing that, they therefore somehow or other were able to realize the depths of their humanity and the great and the wonderful gift that it is, more so than anyone who does not believe and who thinks that life is only an accident and it's all about themselves. Then he goes on to the second one and he says, or, or, or again, what woman with ten drachma would not, if she lost one, light a lamp and sweep out the house and search thir thoroughly till she found it? And then when she had found it, call together her friends and neighbors, rejoice with me, I have found the drachma I have lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is more rejoicing among the angels of God over one repentant sinner. And there we have, again, someone has been rescued from total darkness. And, and that's not something that we, we experience. I think sometimes in, in prayer life and sometimes in, in the mystical life, we, we can talk about the dark night of the soul. And we think of that kind of as being depressed, and it's not being depressed. It's expressing a sense of the absence of God. And that is once we are accustomed to the presence of God, the experience of his absence is excruciating. And, 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 and I think that, um, that we, we really don't, the only way we could understand that is to be deeply, deeply in love with another person. And, uh, and live with that other person, and then they go away. That, that loss, that sense of loss, that sense of isolation, that sense of aloneness, um, that sense of abandonment, that's the dark night of the soul. It's not, gee, I have a bad day today, or gee, I'm really depressed because I didn't get what I wanted out of life, or something like that. No, this is something, this is an experience beyond, that involves not just ourselves, but beyond ourselves. And so while we have that experience, is it, a, it is a painful experience, but it's a painful experience of faith. And in that dark night of the soul, when we do experience the absence of God, we might want to then, in some way, shape, or form, be willing to have some compassion, even on the worst of sinners, for that is their life. That dark night is how they live. They, they, they gloss over it. They, they, through every way, shape, or form, try to escape the pain of it. But somehow or other, they, their life, at the very core of it, experiences loss. They try to substitute for that with causes, with all sorts of bizarre causes, with all sorts of, of uh, progressive politics and all these other kinds of things. But down deep inside, there is a pain. And I think that in our human compassion, we have, to, we have to really reflect upon that. And instead of being jealous of the good that they have, we should have compassion on what they don't have and what the Lord has freely given to us. The next parable points this out pretty much. And it, I'm, not going to, I'm not going to read it because it's so familiar to us. But it is the parable of what we call the prodigal son. And it's 
you know, one of the great things about this parable is that it's, it's just quintessentially a human story with some exaggeration in it, certainly, for the sake of clarity and for the sake of making a point of the whole thing. But basically, we know the, the father had two sons. The younger said to his father, Father, let me have the share of my estate that would, come to, that would come to me. This is in conformity with Deuteronomy. The youngest son in the family was entitled to a third of what the father had. But there was no obligation on the part of the father to have give that to him while the father himself was alive. It would have been intended to be an inheritance when the father died. Um, however, in this case, the father in his benevolence and uh, might saying even spoiling his son said, you know, you, you, you want all this money, certainly you can have it. And as is not unusual with uh, a windfall, especially among the inexperienced, um, it turns out to be a disaster instead. Because instead of taking the money and carefully using it in order to build a decent life for himself, he simply squanders it on dissolute living. And as a matter of fact, the, the, his, his older brother is going to say, he took your money and he spent it on harlots and so forth. Um, so we are to understand and believe that uh, the son moved to a distant country into pagan territory and lived a totally depraved and a pagan life. And it's not until he physically suffers from that with hunger that he thinks about, well, you know, in my father's house, in my father's estate, even, even the servants live better than I'm living right now. Um, their life is even better than mine. This is the story also of conversion. When the great sinner finds out that even the least in the kingdom of heaven have a better life than he does, then he or she turns then and tends to seek some kind of reconciliation with the world that they came from, with the reality of who they are, with the truth of their own being. And that's what this young man feels. He is in the absolute degradation. While he lived in absolute debauchery, he now lives in absolute degradation. We know what the Jewish relationship with, with pigs are and pork and so forth. And so to make the story as, as dramatic as possible, Jesus said that he was left uh, to, take, to farm on his farm to uh, take care of the pigs and that he longed to eat what the pigs were eating, but no one offered him anything at all. And so he came to his senses, it says, how many of my father's paid servants have more food than they want? And here I am dying of hunger. I'm going to leave this place and go to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Treat me as one of your paid servants. So he left the place and went back to his father. So it is a story then of finally coming um, face to face with the truth of who he was and what he had become. It is exacerbated by the physical hardship of the, of the world that he now lives in. But in some sense or form, he looks back and he says, no, it, it's, it's time to go home. I have squandered my position. I am no longer, you know, a, a privileged son of my father for I have destroyed all that by my own sinfulness. But if I go back humbly and I ask for the least place in his world, 
then I will have so much more that I have now. And I think that this is an authentic image of conversion. That, you know, I have squandered what the Lord has given me. I've squandered grace. I have squandered his love. I have squandered his affection for me. I have squandered the purpose of my creation. I have squandered everything in serious sin. And what am I to do to go back and say, you know, Lord, restore me to the fullness of your graces? Or is it not that we say, Lord, please just save me. Lord, please just include me in your kingdom. The lowest place is fine with me as long as I'm able to come home. And, uh, and, and you know, we, we have to be careful of something, though, in all of this. And, and I'm reminded of this when we, when we talk about sin and forgiveness and repentance. We talk about the wonder of God's forgiveness, and we're going to see that certainly in, in this particular text of, of the prodigal son. But you can draw false conclusions from that. And those false conclusions of that were drawn, for instance, by Martin Luther. And uh, when he said, you know, sin boldly so that uh, you can experience the wonder of God's mercy and forgiveness. Um, somehow or other, that's just ridiculous. Um, why, why would the son say, gee, you know, I know I'm going to end up all right. I know my father's going to forgive me, but boy, am I ever going to make him suffer in the meantime while I have the time of my life. That's, that's, that, that's ridiculous. And, and I think that somehow or other, we, we have to know and have to understand that our deepest happiness and the deepest fulfillment of meaning in our particular lives is that we live as close to the Lord as we can. We suffer what we suffer, we end up where we end up, but in some way, shape, or form, we do not in any way seek a total alienation from the very source of our own being. We do not seek, because ultimately to be totally alienated from God is to be totally alienated from ourselves, from that which is most real and most profound and deepest within us. Then, of course, we have the young man go back, and his father is extravagant in his forgiveness. Um, extravagant beyond anything that, that would even be reasonable. It is so lavish. Um, when he, you know, he puts a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, he kills the fatted calf, um, and, you know, and he's, he's back to life, and, and he who was lost is now found. And so that idea of the benevolence of the, of, the, of the abundance and the lavishness of God's forgiveness and mercy, no matter what the terrible things are that we might have done. Um, but now we have to deal with the elder son, and this might be the most relevant part of the gospel for most people, and that is the jealousy. The jealousy of the faithful toward those who have repented at the last minute and who enter into the same kingdom of heaven that they enter into after a lifetime of fidelity and a lifetime of faithfulness. Well, this tells us something about how we're to live faith in our ordinary everyday lives. We do not live in a make-believe world. Faith enhances our humanity. Closeness to God makes us a deeper, more profound, more complete person than we would be otherwise. 
why in the world we should be jealous or resentful of someone whose life has been pure misery but finally finds some kind of happiness or some kind of, of, uh, of uh, restitution of themselves to themselves. To find God is to find myself. And, and St. Bernard tells us that, you know, that we don't know who we are unless we know our origin and our destiny. What is our origin? What is our destiny? It's Jesus Christ. We come from him, we go to him. That's the meaning of our life. If we don't know that, then we don't know who we are. And if we don't know who we are, we live a life of alienation. And that life of alienation is not just from the God who made us, but it is from our identity. It's from who we truly are. It's, it's, we, we, never, we never really see who we are if we live in, an alien, if we live in alienation from the divine being. It's, it's, just, it's just reality. And, and these people who think, you know, that somehow or other they're going to create a utopia on earth. It's like that, that, I don't know, some of those songs that we used to sing at Mass, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Um, that what was that gather us in? I think was it not in some heaven light years away. Um, anyone who thinks heaven is light years away has never received the Eucharist, um, because they've and anyone who who does not believe that that you know that the world of the divine is has an imminence as a presence to us in our lives then they, they, really, they really don't understand the faith and they really don't understand themselves or the world in which they live. And, and down deep inside, they're, they're delusional. And in that delusion, they certainly lack the depth and they, they, lack, they, they lack those qualities, those deep qualities of life that, uh, that help to make us even more human. Um, and when we say make us more human, this is kind of like, you know, this is offensive to, to maybe an ascetic or something. But, but no, because humanity is what Jesus had, and humanity is what he created. And for us to live that to its fullest is for us to realize the potential of our whole being and the potential of our whole life and the meaning of our whole life. Those who find that in faith and they will find it only in some kind of faith relationship with their God. They will not find it in other ways, which is why when we look at our society, corrupt as it is, it is shallow. And it's shallow because the pervasive culture has denied who it really is. They have denied the meaning of their whole existence. The prevailing culture is one that has alienated itself from God and therefore alienated itself from those who live it. And it lives therefore in a meaningless world in which people strive to create meaning themselves ever more excessively, ever more absurdly, trying to find it in sex and drugs and music and entertainment and in, uh, in, in odd sorts of, uh, you know, like the, the feminist deconstructionists talk about, you know, even, even in surgery by changing who we are and so forth. No. That's alienation. That's separation. That's what this gospel is talking about. It is also talking about the fact that God's arms are always open. And any of us and all of us can always return if we simply have the humility to do so. 
Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. Sanctity